Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating new and emerging HR-positive breast cancer care paradigms. In this episode, embracing HER2 low, TROPE2 directed, and other newer approaches to HR-positive breast cancer, Dr. Adam Brusky and Dr. Heather MacArthur take a look at some of the clinical data behind the newer treatment strategies for HR-positive breast cancer, as well as how to address some associated adverse events. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo and AstraZeneca. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash HR positive breast two. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Brofsky is Professor of Medicine at UPC Hillman Cancer Center at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Dr. MacArthur is the Clinical Director of Breast Oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Brofsky will begin our discussion. So Heather, welcome back. And uh, in the last podcast, uh, we discussed you know, various options for patients uh, with uh, progressive uh, form receptor positive uh, metastatic breast cancer. Um, and now let's talk a little bit more uh, about some other therapies, in particular the ADCs. And I think that generally, and I think everybody's practice is, you try to get the maximum amount out of your oral agents. Um, but when eventually people become hormone resistant, uh, we turn to chemo. And I think that, what's your go-to chemo? Because I, I think I know what the answer is, but what's your go-to chemo is the first chemo you would give somebody uh, after being on oral agents for a while? Uh, well, typically capecitabine if there's limited burden of disease and they have relatively indolent disease, um, often when patients develop real endocrine resistance, though, they can behave more like triple negative disease, in which case I look typically to a taxane-based therapy historically. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. You know, you, you see these weird, you see these different presentations, right? Someone who's been maybe a couple bone nets has been on CDK for three or four years. They're fine. You happen to do the routine CT and all of a sudden they're full of liver metastases. I don't know if you've seen that one. I've had that happen a couple of times yeah. versus somebody who has maybe a couple more, maybe what happens is they have a couple more bone metastases, maybe one extra one. You call it oligoprogression and you radiate it, but now it's maybe six months later and now they have four or five more. You know, those are different presentations, right? And I totally agree with you. And I think you're going to, we're really going to have to, although I think in the era of ADCs, like we're going to talk about in a few minutes, we may not have to tailor it, but I agree. I mean, my go-to has been CAPE. Um, or, it, you know, in the case, the uncommon case of that person who suddenly just has everything there um, to go to more of a taxane-based or maybe in a ribulin, you know, a, a ribulin-based therapy at that point. Yeah. And I would admit that I recycle. So for that second case that you describe where it's just sort of this indolent, years-long course, you're going through multiple endocrine therapies, I have been known to recycle um, something that I used years before, um, with good effect in endocrine therapy. So exactly, you know what I, so I had a fellow look through our data, our, our data in our practice. We have this database of about 2000 women we've treated over the last 25 years. 
and I had a fellow look through that to actually, we, we had an ASCO abstract on recycling, you know, with like a response. Oh, interesting. Rate. Uh -huh. But it was literally right before CDKs came around. <laughs> so it got lost. It was like 2016 or something like that. And then the CDKs suddenly were there and it was, ah, we got CDKs, you know, who needs to recycle? Maybe you should anymore? recycle your recycling data. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Probably. You know, it's wild, you know, because it's it's like, I agree with you. I used to recycle all the time. And and I think that in, in a new era, though, it's going to be really interesting with all these new targeted agents. But I think the first thing really to talk about are, are ADCs. And I think that obviously, you know, we have this HER2 low. And I think it's the first thing to talk about, this HER2 1 plus and 2 plus and, mm -hmm. and DBO4. Um, and it was great that uh, Shanu got a standing ovation. If you remember that. At I oh, my gosh. How could you forget that? ASCO plenary. The only standing yeah, O I've ever seen at an ASCO plenary, tears streaming down people's faces. It was a pretty poignant moment. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I don't know if you remember 2000. It was like a very reminiscent of 2005 when the- Yes, Herceptin. The yes. first out and yes. George Sledge had the picture of like the, the, the eye. It was like really, it was, it was, it was, I remember that too. And so everybody in your generation could remember this. But the bottom that line- was my first ASCO, by the way, Adam. Oh, really? When I was a fellow in 2005, and I was like, wow, these meetings are so emotional. Everyone it was. It was crying. pretty cool. That special session was pretty cool. <laughs> Little no, did I, I know that was such a, a momentous moment in time, but it no, made I an agree. impact. <laughs> I agree. And I think that, um, you know, so again, just to refresh the memory of the guy, people in the audience listening, you know, DBO4 was after, after you know, completion of like a couple endocrine therapies and then at least one chemo. Usually, capecitabine, um, I think, was the majority of that first-line chemo that people had had. And then they were randomized to a standard of care chemo, any one of Aribulin, Gemzar, I think Paclitaxel as well, if I'm not mistaken, versus um, versus uh, Trentuzumab Deruxtecan, which everybody knows is a HER2 antibody uh, with, a pay, with a linker, a cleavable linker bound to um, Deruxtecan, uh, which is actually one of the more powerful uh, topo one agents that we have. Uh, and just to refresh everybody, the progression-free survival was doubled from about uh, five and a half months on the standard care to about 10 months. And there was a survival benefit as well. I think that was at least six or seven months more. I think the median overall survival of this to like what sounds like fourth or fifth line therapy was at least two years. Yeah, so she just reported that a couple of weeks ago at the ESMO meeting in right, Madrid, the, the survival update, mm -hmm, which was 16 and 16.8 months versus 22.9 months for all patients. And in the hormone receptor positive cohort, um, very similar, 17.6 months versus 23.9 months. And of course, in this study, the vast majority of patients with HER2 low disease are hormone receptor positive. And so it's really that population that's driving the um, ITT outcomes. Only about 10% of patients had triple negative breast cancer. That was her too low. And the really interesting thing about that trial is that it was stable, is that basically, you know, we now look a year in the future and the curves still remain separated. They didn't really come together. And to me, what that tells me is that it interfered with the natural history very early, that rapidly progressing patient that maybe would have died, you know, now is alive because of this drug. And I think that to me, you know, who that is, I think is a whole other story. But when you look at all of like the hormonal things, you look at the Emerald trial, 
you look at some of the other trials, about 50% of the patients progress within the first scan, with the first two months, right. and then the curves separate. Emerald was really very classic in that way. And I think that when you look at the curves in DBO4, only about maybe half of those patients are now salvaged. They don't progress really rapidly. Maybe that's who it is, but who they are genomically, I think we don't have any idea. But it's a really, it's a really uh, cool thing. And so that brings up a couple questions. You know, the first thing is her too low. You know, and the issue with her too low, one plus or two plus IHC, is that first of all, a lot of people stop doing it, as you know, some very major institutions in the United States, very, you know, very prominent, very influential institutions had stopped doing IHC. And the second thing is that the Hercept test, IHC- prior to, Just to clarify, you mean prior to this, a lot of institutions had yeah, prior to testing exclusively to look for HER2 positive disease. Yeah, they did to look for HER2 positive, because that's what we were looking for, right? Right. That was the big argument. I tortured, we kept doing IHC because we, we had guys that were really into IHC or pathologists forever. And I would torture them about, is, are you sure this is not three plus? You know, look, look, it's really three plus, you're calling it two plus. You know, we'd have breast conference and they would put up the, the, the slides and we would torture them about it. And all of a sudden now we're asking them to go the other way. You know, right. what's one plus and what's two plus? How faint is it? Is there any standing at all? Is it more than 10%? And I think that, I don't know what your experience has been, but I think that's been, you know, an issue in certain areas of the country, you know, figuring out what really is a one plus or not. Right. And is there, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, as a reminder to qualify for Destiny Bresto 4, you had to be HER2 low, but it didn't dictate what tissue you used. So you could pick and choose from any prior biopsy surgery sample um, to hand cherry pick the sample that made patients eligible for this effort. And it, to your point, speaks to the fact that HER2 testing was designed to look for HER2 positivity. It was not designed to look for HER2 low disease. And now it will be interesting to see how this swings as we get data from ongoing destiny breast study that includes HER2 ultra low patients. So patients who are HER2 zero, um, um, which again, to be HER2 one plus, you have to have 10% or more cells that are HER2 positive, but even in HER2 zero, you can still have HER2 positive cells there. You just don't meet that 10% threshold. So if that data in the ultra low population is positive, we were really going to be, um, I think, scratching our heads. And I was interested, we could talk about this more later, but I was interested that in the re recent updated ASCO cap guidelines, they decided fundamentally not to make any changes at this point in the HER2 testing recommendations, but you have to assume that that's forthcoming. Right, that's going to be changed, but right? it's true. I mean, and I think that, you know, we have all this novel technology now, you know, quantitative immunofluorescence and uh, other, you know, you know, protein-based assays for HER2. And I think that at least you get the biggest bang for the buck right now in 2023 um, really asking your pathologist maybe to go back and relook, you know, re-examine some tissue. If you get it, what do you do if you get a HER2 zero? Do you retest another sample? Do you sometimes? <laughs> do, or do you simply ask them to go back to the prior sample and restain it? Uh, you know, how do you handle that? All of the above, I think. Again, because to qualify for this access, you could interrogate any number of tissues. You could use whatever result was most um, suitable. 
to get access to the opportunity. And I think that's really the clinical challenge. And we've definitely had conversations in our tumor board where people have um, interrogated serial samples or even looked at other, asked the pathologist to look at other areas in a, in a sample to look for, you know, that clone of HER2 positive cells um, to justify accessing these novel, um, very exciting drugs. So um, I think all of the above right now, until we have a more refined understanding about how best to actually identify people who are truly benefiting from these approaches. And so now the next thing is this definitely, you know, great drug, got the standing ovation at ASCO, but it has, I mean, it clearly has nausea, which we can deal with. There's going to be a really interesting paper. I don't know, are you on that paper? They, they announced the titles of the San Antonio abstracts. There's a paper of like a lanzapine, you know, low-dose lanzapine dosing, you know, chronically or something like that. You know, so nausea is one of the issues, but I think we can deal with the nausea. I, well, I'll tell you, before we go into the real issue, Adam, I will tell you, I have yeah. had this past year two very discordant experiences. I have inherited from Shanu Modi one of her Destiny Breast 01 patients, so from the original early phase study, and she had been on this drug for more than six years, NED. We always... Um, equivocate on whether we should switch her to trastuzumab as maintenance therapy, but she always wanted to stay on it because she had absolutely no side effects, zero. Mm -hmm. In contrast, I had a patient who had two doses of the drug and she said, I don't care how advantageous, life-extending, whatever this drug is, her vomiting was so horrific, she never wanted to see. And I said, we could further, she was, and she got the three prophylactic drug combination, which is really important with this drug. You have to get all three um, preventative uh, antiemetics. She had all three, I said, we could further maximize your um, antiemetic regimen. Um, and she was like, absolutely not. It was such a horrific experience. So those are two very extremes. Obviously, most people fall somewhere in the middle, but for some people, the, the nausea and vomiting, even with optimal um, prophylaxis, is, is a real issue. Yeah, I mean, but the big issue, I mean, clearly nausea is nothing to, you know, you know, to kind of, I mean, as you just said, I mean, it could be very severe in people, but the interstitial lung disease is really the, the big issue with this. And you know, the, the problem is that you have patients who this drug works really well in. It's just, you know, I cannot emphasize enough, um, you know, that we really have to be careful with this drug. Uh, yeah, the, in the updated analysis that Shanu presented at ESMO a couple of weeks ago, um, there weren't any new cases of ILD since the, uh, the primary analysis, but the overall incidence was about 12% right. with uh, just over 1% fatal ILD experience. So vigilance, as you point out, is really critical with really this drug. Good. And I don't know how we're going to move these drugs into the curative intent setting. Maybe people's yeah. protoplasms will be better in that uh it's just, it's hard to know. I mean, it's just it's it's just that that asymptomatic ILD. You know, you have someone who's responding dramatically. You got to stop the drug for four to six weeks. Maybe give steroids. Maybe not. We we scan them and wait for it to get better. You know, it's going to be. It's really it's introducing a, a challenge here, especially in areas. I mean, we're very fortunate, both of us. You know, to be in in large comprehensive cancer centers, but I think that you know someone in the community maybe who doesn't have the support. 
uh, that we do. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes because you have a drug that really, I think, has changed the natural history of the disease, but does have a really weird and almost unpredictable. I mean, we don't even know the mechanism, to be honest with you. I think it's we've had this drug now out and around for about three or four years, and we still don't know the mechanism you know, by which we get the ILD. And there's a huge range around time to onset too, which is um, disconcerting. Yeah. So the next so the next question, you know, that we have obviously is we have other drugs. We have another ADC directed against trope two, at least one that's been approved and one that hasn't yet. And let's start with sasituzumab. So, you know, what's been your experience? I think uh, it was approved Tropics 2, you know, announced I think over a year ago. And it was approved by the FDA uh, for, you know, you have to go through at least two lines of chemo. Uh, and Tropics 2 was, you know, very similar to Destiny Breast 04, except you had two chemos. And then you were randomized to either sasituzumab or physician choice of chemo. Uh, and again, because these were very heavily retreated patients, we're talking fifth line on average. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, you know, the PFS in absolute terms wasn't huge, but there was a difference and there was a survival advantage you know, with a decent hazard ratio. In absolute terms, about three months, but I think the hazard ratio is like 0 0.7, 0.75 or something like that. And I think that, you know, that has led now to a lot of people using sasituzumab. And so where do you use it in ER positive disease? Do you use it after TDXD? Do you use it in HER2 zeros, both? I mean, how that's, do you use it? I mean, that's the million dollar question. I have to say, when I saw the PFS data with that, you know, 1.5 month, Delta from four to five and a half months, I was honestly a little underwhelmed. But the survival data, which was more impressive, um, made me a little bit more excited about using this drug overall. Um, I would say that I use it um, probably more commonly in triple negative disease than I do in hormone receptor positive disease. Um, if they were HER2 zero, I would use this early on. I mean, typically after at least usually one line of chemotherapy, I haven't had access to it as an upfront chemotherapeutic. So as a first line chemotherapeutic after endocrine therapy, I'm not sure that I'd have, I've tried quite frankly. In the HER2 low space, that is an active area of investigation. So what is the optimal sequencing of these antibody drug conjugates? And there are some efforts that are underway through some of the cooperative groups trying to move forward some prospective studies looking at that exact issue sequencing, um, both in the ER positive and in the triple negative group. So I'm not sure what the optimal um, sequence is. Um, and I think it's hard to ask patients to make informed decisions in this space, quite frankly. Well, you know, we've got to do that. They're not going to know. Right, right, right. So I laugh when I, you and I were on an ad board recently where someone said they were going to have an informed consent discussion with their patient. And I just said, well, I'm glad that you have three hours <laughs> for that new visit. Right, exactly. because, <laughs> um, because I think we have to guide we have to guide patients. So, um, you know, it's a little bit probably um, influenced by if they have lung met involvement or they have COPD or something, I might shy away from um, trastuzumab, Drexigen up front and favor um, sazituzumab for a patient with HER2 low disease. 
I'm certainly favoring um, sazituzumab over conventional chemotherapy if I can get access to it. Um, so I don't think there's a clear algorithm, quite frankly, in this space. Um, and I think that the decisions are being tailored to the individual. And so the is, and I agree with you. I mean, I think we tailor it, but I generally, even her too low ear prostates will give, um, will give uh, trastuzumab drugs TCAN first, and then sasituzumab second. Some people want to. So I think that's interesting because tropics at the um, ascent trial, which was. Um, now this is an ER positive, not ER, ER negative. positive. Pardon me. Okay. ER positive. No, ER negative. That's is the fair. That's fair. That's ER fair. negative. There's just not a lot of data outside of ascent. There's only 60 patients on DBO4 that were right. ER Right. But okay. for ER positive, but you know, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. Some people are saying you shouldn't use one antibody right after the other, that you should have a chemo pause in between. Have you heard of this? I don't, you know, some people. That sounds like hand waving to me, but. Um... Uh, it's it's someone we both know very well <laughs> who, who is uh, who is extrapolating, I think, from some preclinical data. But I don't, I don't know where that comes from. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, maybe there'll be real world data that. I mean, why? I don't understand why that. I. It's not obvious to me why that would be a sensible approach because this is just targeted chemotherapy, let's be honest. And I right. don't know why infused chemotherapy as a break would confer any increased sensitivity to targeted chemo. Yeah. Me either. I don't understand that either. So the two major side effects of sasituzumab, as we know, you know, are neutropenia and fever neutropenia and diarrhea. And so the first question is, you know, when, when Sasuke first came out for triple negative disease, um, a lot of us, probably half of, of a U.S. oncologists, from the data that I remember, were using prophylactic growth factors with it. And do you use prophylactic growth factors? And if so, how do you use them? I do not use prophylactic growth factors. I introduce them when um, clinically indicated, but I have seen people do a lot of interesting things. I've seen them use... Um, GCSF, so not just Neupogen, but GCSF in these patients. I've seen them, the schedule, you know, on the Tropics 2 trial was days one and eight every 21 days. I've seen people who are creating novel um, every other week schedules to try to mitigate the risk of neutropenia. Um, yeah. I'm seeing some interesting things, but I, I typically treat sort of um, at the schedule that a regimen um, was studied. So I'm adhering to the um, day one and eight administration and then just folding in um, support as needed. Yeah, I tend to, when I'm going to do it, I tend to, I rarely use primary prophylaxis, although I've been burnt a couple of times. Um, so I generally secondary and I will use long acting GCSF on day nine. It's kind of how I've kind of uh, done this. And with diarrhea, it's just generally holding the drug and dose reduction generally has been useful to me. It's still probably 10% of the patients just can't tolerate it and I have to take them off for diarrhea has been my experience. Um, so the last thing to talk about before we're done is uh, data that was at ESMO last week or two weeks ago um, about datapotamab. And my, you know, all, before I give you my kind of like, you know, hot take, my hot social media take, which is what we all did, what was your hot take on this, on that trial? So um, this was the um, novel trope 2 directed antibody drug conjugate um, that was interrogated in the um, Tropion Brasto 1 study. 
patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer treated with one to two prior lines of chemotherapy were enrolled. They have to have, had to have good uh, functional status, of course. Were randomized to receive DATO DXD versus investigators' choice uh, chemotherapy. This was in the um, presidential session, which is the ASCO plenary equivalent. Um, and uh, progression-free survival improvement. It was an absolute improvement of two months from, I think it was 4.9 to 6.9 months, but impressive hazard ratio of 0.63 um, with very consistent benefits across all of the subgroups interrogated. I think we need to see um, survival data, but I think it looks as promising as any of the PFS curves that I've seen with any of these antibody drug conjugates. The oral stomatitis with this drug is a real issue, and it'll be interesting to see how that is addressed in the curative intent setting, because that's where these drugs are, have moved into. Um, but I, I, thought it was, I thought it was encouraging. Is it practice changing for me tomorrow if it was FDA approved? I don't, I don't know that it would be based on PFS alone. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think it's moving into this space, and it's going to be, I think, a question of which company moves most expeditiously, right? Yeah, I think that, you know, my hot take was it looked a lot like sasituzumab in an earlier line. You know, the yeah, same hazard ratios, trend mm -hmm. toward overall survival, then on the next mm -hmm. look, maybe positive statistically when there are more events. And the differences really are the Q3 week versus the day one, day eight. And the side effect profile. Right. And what Aditya didn't do, Aditya Bardia, when he presented it, I wish he had done this, was really delve a little bit more deeply into the stomatitis and how it was treated. Because the rumor was, and I forgot this, that on the trial, oral steroid mouthwash was not required. You know, it was physician's discretion to whether to start using it or not. And so, you know, when you have a 6% grade three stomatitis rate, um, you know, some people thought that was on the oral steroid mouthwash, and it wasn't. And so I think that, you know, most patients tolerated, there were very few discontinuations for that. Um, so that was one issue. The, the ILD rate was, I think, three or 4% with one fatal ILD on that. And um, that was probably the big side effect was really the stomatitis and, and, and keratitis. So they called it dry eye, you know, but it seemed to be okay. Uh, in most patients, I think there's only one patient that had come off trial because of it. So, you know, these are not, so I think the way people are probably going to make decisions, the way I'm going to make the decision, if and when data gets approved, I think is going to be on, you know, the day one, the Q3 versus the day one, day eight. And assuming they're both equally efficacious, assuming there's a survival benefit and the hazard ratios are roughly equivalent and on the side effect profile, I think that's how I'm going to probably make my decision about which one to use. I'm not yeah. sure I'm going to use one after the other. I may. We'll have to see. But um, I think it's going to be very interesting. It's not quite, as you said, practice changing yet, because uh, I think we still need to see the survival data. But I think it's something that's going to give us an option. And these are moving into the post-neoadjuvant setting. So we're going to see what Absolutely. happens. In the first well, and I think it'll be interesting um, to see, because um, it's, it's worth clarifying, Adam, that um, there's a bit of a misconception around this issue of ILC that it's an ADC class effect. It is not. So no. I think it's worth pointing out that sazituzumab govotecan is not associated with any ILD. And so that is a distinguishing feature between that drug and, and uh, some of the others that we've been talking about.
Right. And it's really, again, it just speaks to the fact that we don't, these are really interesting drugs that have clearly going to change the natural history of cancer, multiple cancers, not just breast. But I don't think we really know a lot about some basic mechanisms of them. You know, what is resistance to these agents? You know, is it to the payload? Is it to antibody recycling? You know, how does it, how, how does ILD happen? Yeah, why is stomatitis such a big issue potentially with this trope 2 directed ADC, but not another trope 2 ADC if the antibody targets are the same, if payloads are, are overlapping between some of these ADCs? It's, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon, and whether it's related to the linker or whether it's a target effect, I don't know, but it's interesting how these nuances are emerging. Right. And so, I mean, that's a great wrap up to this is that these agents clearly are changing the natural history of the disease. Uh, there are more of them coming. Uh, and, but the, uh, but the, but, but we still don't know a lot. We don't have a lot of good, you know, baseline scientific data to understand some of the toxicity and some of the resistance to these agents. And hopefully we'll learn that in the coming years. Uh, so again, I think any other wrap up thoughts? No, again, I just think it's uh, a time of real um, optimism. Uh, we talked earlier about all the um, incredible data that we've seen sort of in the endocrine sensitive space. And now to see improvements, significant improvements in PFS and in some occasions OS um, with these novel um, strategies is, is really exciting. Expensive, but exciting. Yes, I agree. Great. Well, thanks again, guys, for listening to us, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash HR Positive Breast 2. You can find all the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service, or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs>